Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. We're going to start with some shocking words of Jesus. Uh, imagine that. You can open them up to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at something Jesus said, then we're going to look at something Apostle Paul said, just a few things, and then we're going to spend most of our time on application today. We're going to, a little bit of Scripture, a lot of application, because we want to really look at today, uh, how can we live out what the Scriptures plainly teach us. You know, Jesus uh, said and taught some things that were surprising to a lot of people of His day. How many of you know that? For, for one thing, Jesus really blurred the boundaries between family and non-family, and which is interesting because he was born into a very conservative, very kinship-oriented culture, the, the, the society he was born in. Uh, family was very important. Everything was about family. You, you basically were born, lived, and died in the same place back then. You lived with your family. You lived around your family. You, you know, you didn't grow up and get a job in St. Louis or New York or L.A. or something like that, you grew up and got a job next door to where you were born, you know, and that's where you lived. And the villages there would often composed of four or five families, you know, clans, and they would all live in the same place. And so that's kind of where you lived your whole life. So we have to understand, first of all, how radical what Jesus is about to say here is within a first century context. One time we were reading, we're reading in Matthew chapter 12 here, Jesus is preaching and there's this huge crowd outside. Everybody's gathered around, they're all packed in listening to him. And it's so big, the crowd, that his own family who came to see him, they couldn't even get through when they came to visit. They had to send word through the crowd, uh, hey, someone please tell them that Jesus' family is here. And look what he says in verse 46. It says, while Jesus was talking to, still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone said, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. So he takes this opportunity because he's Jesus. He's awesome. He takes this opportunity for a teaching moment. He replies, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's a very Zen question, right? Who's really part of my family? He says he points to his disciples. Those who were, these are the people who were, learning from him, walking in his steps. He said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. So notice who he's, he's, he's about to say this about. Those who do the will of my Father in heaven, whoever, not who's the one who's the most educated, not who's achieved the most, who's a big shot. But if you do his will, that is to say, I, I want to, I want to learn about Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to learn his teachings and learn to walk in his ways. I want to copy Jesus. I may not be somebody who's highly advanced. You know, I'm just, a, I'm just enlisted to be a student here. That's a disciple. I want to follow him and learn from him. Then Jesus says, that is who is my brother and sister and mother. That is his family. Now, Jesus isn't saying in any way, by any means, that biological family is not important. He's not saying that. He's not saying our actual relatives are unimportant. He is just saying that they are not all important. Now, that's a real revelation, I think, for some folks today, that our, our biological relatives are not all important. We know that Jesus 
loved his family. We know he respected his mother very highly. Several couple times in his life, uh, we see his words to G, to uh, about his mother or to his mother taking care of her. Uh, the wedding of Cana and even on the cross, he's thinking about his mother. But he, so he's not pushing away his family uh, only to exalt his followers. What he's doing is broadening the circle. He's broadening the circle to say that we are all family together. So keep this in mind. We're going to look at something else. Now, the Apostle Paul, several years later, he comes along, and he's helping to cast this same vision, this idea about family in the church. He writes to, he's writing to his friend Timothy, who's also a fellow pastor. And in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, he says this, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. God's household. Literally, that's God's family. That's, that's the old word for family, his household. He's not talking about a building. He's talking about people, the body of Christ, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation of the truth. What's the pillar and foundation of truth? The church. The church. The body of Christ is so important here. Why, are, why is the body of Christ so important? Because the system that Jesus has come up with is that we, the people, we steward the message of God through, through the church. We steward his message. And so he calls the church the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now those are words, the pillar and foundation of the church. If you ask the person on the street, or a Christian maybe on the street, What's the pillar and foundation on the, uh, what's the pillar and foundation of the truth? A lot of Christians might would say the Bible. The, the Bible, right? The Bible is the pillar and foundation of the truth. You've got to slam your hand down. It makes it more forceful when you say that, right? The Bible. The Bible. But Paul says, no, actually, the church is. Isn't that interesting? Right here. These people, these men and women in this room. See, if the truth just sits there as a book... If that, if that is the pillar and foundation of the truth, the power is not yet being lived out. It's just a book. It's when the book connects with the life and that same spirit who inspires the book now comes through the book and it comes into you and, and me and, and it's changing lives. If you don't read it, it's just sitting there, right? It's just sitting there. But it's a community of people gathered around, not only reading the book, but we live it out. We're putting it into practice, living it out. We let its message come into our lives and, and take root and grow, and we live it out together. That's the pillar and foundation of truth in the earth. It's us. So he's saying that, kind of what we said in the beginning, that we're being a blessing when we put this stuff into practice. We're not, we're not just being a blessing to ourselves. We're being a blessing to others as we steward the truth. As we steward the truth, we pass it on from generation to generation, and we also share it with other people outside the church who don't know yet, don't yet know Jesus. Now, check out what he says in chapter five. He's still part of this letter he's writing to Timothy. He says, "Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters." with absolute purity. So treat everybody, he says here, like they're actual family to you. 
actual family, actual family. And again, he's not saying, he's not saying ignore your family so you can just love people in the church. He's saying elevate everyone in the church to the level of family. That's a bold command, isn't it? Elevate everyone in the church to the level of family. We, we know he's, he's not discarding your biological family because look in, in verse 8, Paul's like, you know, I know there's going to be somebody out there who is just like, oh, okay, I've abandoned my family for Jesus. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I've abandoned all my earthly relationships. Uh, it's just me and Jesus. Paul says, don't you dare, don't dare. You'll be missing the point. Verse 8, he says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household family, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So those are some harsh words. We're not, we're not being called on to deny our family. Don't use your love of God as an excuse for abandoning those closest to you. But when we give our life to Jesus, the cool thing is, He helps us not only love our own family better, He helps love everyone else better. Jesus helps us love better, doesn't He? He helps us love better. So you start at home, but then you widen the circle and you move out. Start at home and then you move out. Okay, that was part one. So here's part two. We're going to get really practical here for the last few minutes. Um, what does this have to do with us today? In this series, we're asking, what does it look like to have gospel-centered relationships between men and women, in a nutshell? That's what we're saying. What does it look like to have gospel-centered relationships between men and women instead of curse-centered relationships? So let's talk about some practical application of this call from Jesus and the apostles to treat one another like family what does that look like in the church? It comes down to a pretty simple mission, and that is this. We're to treat each other like brothers and sisters. We treat each other like brothers and sisters. He said brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. That is the picture of our relationship with each other. We treat each other like brothers and sisters. That's the model for how we treat each other. It is family. So, so let's look. I want to look at three examples right here in this local church, in Generations Church, you're, you're going right here right now, uh, that show up in our culture, that tell us that we're, how, that, that remind us of when we're doing it right. And we're going to, so we're going to talk about, well, these are three aspects of our culture here at this church. We're also going to be honest about some factors that might be working against us, right? Because there's intrinsic risk with, with these aspects of our culture. The first thing I want to look at is number one, we believe men and women can be friends. We believe men and women can be friends, all right? Now, for, for, for most of us, that's kind of like, no duh. Of course, men and women can be friends. But actually, what's interesting is that is not standard practice, especially throughout human history. When you look throughout human history, the other gender was for marrying, not for befriending, not for being friends with. You hung out your whole life with your own gender, and that's just the way it was, you know? And then when it was time to pick a mate, uh, it was, one was either arranged for you or, or you, you, know, you were at the awkward country dance, you know, and you stood on one wall and the others stood on the other wall and somebody made a first move and, you know, you got to know each other, you got married, and then you learned how to deal with this creature, you know, after that, usually. Um, but we actually believe that men and women can be friends, and that we benefit when we are friends, when we learn from the image of God in the gender we are not. 
Remember, both of it, we're reflecting the image of God, and we reflect it in very unique and beautiful ways. And so we can learn a lot from being friends with the other gender. Um, so I have guy friends. I have women who are friends. Mel has guy friends. She has women who are friends. And now here is some, some wisdom. I'll throw this out here. This is just kind of pastoral wisdom here. This isn't uh, directly from Scripture. It's from the book of Scott here. If you are married, this is for you married folks. If you're married, your greatest confidant, your, your best friend, the one you tell the most intimate things of your heart, of your life, the, of your, you know, your marriage, your walk, your struggles, your temptations, if you were married, that best confidant shouldn't be someone of the, the opposite sex. And that's just wisdom, right? It's not, it's not a scripture I can point you to. It's wisdom. Having, having that person that you're, you're really, if you're doing it right, if you're really having a, a close friend that you can unburden, you know, your, your struggles with, your temptations with, uh, it gets awkward real fast if that person, you know, is of the opposite sex. Um, so that's, that's just a little tidbit from, from Scott. Having uh, a best friend that you confide in, it's best if it's from the same gender. Ideally, even better, is your spouse should be your very best friend. Your, your spouse should be your, your closest confidant. And I'm so blessed. Melissa and I, we, we are truly best friends. I, I know she's got a best girlfriend over there, but, you know, I think, I'm pretty sure she likes me better. Um, but I don't know. It's close. But, uh, but, oh gosh, to have your spouse as your best friend, I mean, I, I have everything I need with that to be able to confide in each other. But let's say you do need special, maybe you need special advice or something like that. Maybe it's concerning your spouse. Uh, there, maybe there's real issues you need help with. Then I would say to speak to uh, someone trusted, someone wise, maybe someone who is further along in that area of life than you are, right? That's a good, that's a good thing. Probably not your old, you know, fraternity brother, uh, the one everybody called bong master, you know, and you call in, don't call that person up and ask for marriage advice. That might not be the best one to help. Uh, someone who's wise, who's, who's further along, but uh, maybe, you know, a trusted fellow Christian um, uh, or a pastor or a counselor. That's the best course of action there. But in your circle of friends, we all have these circles of friends, we actually believe it's not just okay to have men and women as friends, but it's actually good for us to learn from the gender we're not. Number two, here's aspect of our culture. We believe men and women can work side by side. We believe men and women can work side by side. We believe that men and women uh, can serve together in ministry, can volunteer together, and uh, work in pastoral ministry together, in small group ministry, in prayer ministry, community outreach, on staff. We believe men and women can work closely together and honor God. Now, we also understand that this comes with inherent risks, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And it can force us out of our comfort zone. It can force us to actually have to live with wisdom and listening to the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we, now, we could eliminate all the risks if we wanted to, if we just wanted to, to rewound, you know, the clock in human history and say, you know, men and women serve in different spheres, just stay apart. They don't overlap. Women over here, men over here in church life and social life. Men over here, women over here, we're just going to keep them separated. That would solve a whole lot of problems. The problem is create other problems. It creates other problems. And when I look at scriptures, uh, gender segregation I don't see as God's best. We prefer 
to assume the best of people who want to come beside us and serve in kingdom. We assume the best rather than just assume everyone's a threat waiting to happen. So we just, you know, to be safe, let's keep everybody apart. We'd rather not walk that way. Now let's admit something. This is a crazy world, right? You turn on the news, there's a lot of things happening, uh, a lot of gender conflict happening right now. And that is not actually new. It may seem like it's new. You know, you, you might feel like, wow, the world's really nuts. This is, this is really unusual. It's not. It's just on full display for the whole world to see. It is 24-7 streaming public. So, so every scandal, every sexual assault, um, every allegation, it's all public rather than being swept under the rug, which I'll say is a good thing. Praise God that that sexual assault isn't being ignored uh, that it's not being excused, but rather victims have, uh, have their voices heard uh, and offenders are being called out. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And sadly, unfortunately, churches have not been an oasis from bad behavior. Uh, they've been in the news too. We've seen pastors and elders of churches all over the country getting called out for some of the same predatory behavior that Hollywood executives are found guilty of. So, so that's that is a tragedy. But you know what? We can also allow the pendulum to swing so far in the other direction, into the direction of paranoia and self-preservation, that we view each other in the church primarily, as we're coming down the hall, we view each other according to our gender and as a potential threat, right? I can walk down the hall and, oh, it's a woman, it's a woman. Look down, look, say, say hello and keep going. Keep, hello and keep going. Hello and keep going, right? We, you know... Or I could be like, oh, it's good, it's a man, okay, I can talk to you for a while. <laughs> That's paranoia. It's viewing each other as a potential threat. And that might be smart in some areas of life, uh, you know, and if you're taking self-defense classes, that's great. But that's not how we live in the kingdom of God. That's not how brothers and sisters behave. See? Now, oh, we're tying it back together. That's not how brothers and sisters behave. Brothers and sisters are different. We treat each other differently. In God's kingdom, my first response to you isn't based on you being a man or a woman, but you being a family member. That's my first response. Oh, you're family. Here comes family. See, that's the way I'm supposed to see you, primarily. Here comes family. You aren't just a man. You aren't just a woman. You are my sister. You are my brother. And I choose to treat you with the dignity that I would my own sibling. Number three, we believe in a culture that leads with love and wisdom instead of a rigid set of rules. That leads with love and wisdom instead of a rigid set of rules. This takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot more effort than to just lead with a rigid set of rules. We choose to believe the best in each other and choosing to believe the best in each other can be risky, right? When we have to decide about something, rather than just say, you know, if, if there is an incident or something, we, we don't just say, well, our hands are tied by some set of rules. That's, to me, that's really a cop-out so that we don't have to treat people as individuals. We can hide behind a rule. We choose to say, what is the loving case? What is the loving choice, sorry, on a case-by-case-by-case basis? What is the loving choice? What is the wise choice right here in this case? When it comes to men and women, I would rather be led by the Holy Spirit 
not by their gender. In, in ministry, one of the consequences uh, of creating a sort of one-size-fits-all rule, like, you know, no man can meet with a woman, and, and that's, that's a real rule in, in some organizations, no man can meet with a woman. It sounds really pious, it sounds really safe, it's also been an effective method for quietly barring women from positions of leadership. And that's the truth. It, it, it's, it's just absolutely the truth. It also creates a culture where everyone is assumed to be untrustworthy. I'm going to walk in the room and assume, first of all, that you are untrustworthy. And, and what we actually do is hypersexualize each other rather than treating each other as brothers and sisters which is the primary picture of the church in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. One of the, one of the greatest questions you can ask, uh, I think it was Andy Stanley said this, it was such a, such a brilliant thing. The, the best question you can ask is, what is the wise thing to do? What is the wise thing to do? Wisdom requires more than just shutting people out because of their gender or because you want to assume that they cannot be trusted. Or, or you want to assume that you can't be trusted, right? Wisdom depends on the constant leading of the Holy Spirit. It does take a little more effort. It takes more effort to be led by the Spirit. Wisdom sets boundaries, though, that honor other people, honor others, recognize that they are uh, representatives of Jesus. Now, all of this has, has great benefits. We're, you know, proud of these little culture identity markers at Generations. But they come with certain drawbacks, right? And, and let's just admit a truth. Life can get messy. Life can get messy. You know, when the kingdom of God, we talked about in week one, when the kingdom of God crashes into the broken, messed up kingdoms and systems of man, things are going to get messy. Something's going something's to blow up. And we, we want to remember this goal, though. The goal... The goal is living by the Spirit. We want to live by the Spirit. We want to drink deeply from the fountain that never runs dry. Our goal is not keeping our cup looking pretty. It's not having a pretty cup. Jesus talked a lot about this. He chastised the Pharisees because they were so uh, just obsessed with the pretty cup, making sure that cup looked good on the outside. And he says, your cups look gorgeous but there's death inside of them. That's religion. And Jesus not only saves us from the curse of sin and death, he also came to put an end to dead religion, right? The, the cosmetic, superficial tidiness of dead religion, it's really good at making things look clean and pretty and neat, while what's on the inside is dead and foul. Religion is great at that. Religion is great at dressing up what is hidden and dead as something beautiful. Jesus comes and brings life, and he blows up religion, and he helps us to be led by love. And that's who we want to be led by. We want to be led by Jesus. So what we need, if this is all true, is Jesus' definition of love. We want to be led by love. We want to make sure we're being led by Jesus' definition of love, because you can call anything love, can't you? Right? So we want to be led by His. So here, I want to give you some wise steps. And at the next few minutes, I'm, I'm specifically targeting uh, uh, you married folks. 
some wise steps to help us navigate this, this brave new world of the gospel. How do we, how do we give you married couples, uh, how do we maximize your opportunities for successful marriage in this world where we're, we have men and women as friends, where we're working alongside men and women? How do we do that? How do we maximize the benefits of having men and women as friends and co-workers while minimizing the risks? I'm going to give you three tips today. Number one, prioritize the health of your marriage. Prioritize the health of your marriage. Make it a priority. This is a general statement. We don't have time to go real far into this. This is really a series. We'll probably do this next year. Uh, but what all of these things mean. If you're married, though, this has to be your top priority, keeping your marriage healthy, especially in areas of friendship, uh, in areas of, of romance and sex and intimacy. These things are, have to be, you have to keep your marriage healthy. Uh, with, we don't have time to go into all that, but I do want to give you one, one tip here. Mel and I, over the years, we've been married, uh, we celebrated 20 years this past summer. And over the years, we have learned that it is better to have a, a preemptive conversation about an issue than wait till it's all blown up then wait till someone is like curled up in the fetal position crying their eyes out in the corner, right? Because then Mel usually has to stop what she's doing, come over and ask me what's wrong. It's ugly. Well, I'm glad you noticed. Uh, before we get to that, what's better is if, if we come together and, and, and work on what's happening beneath the surface before it explodes. Or even, even better to talk to someone wiser than us which we have done. We've talked to wiser people than us, and it's such a beautiful, healthy thing. Uh, because what often happens, we have this really hyper-privatized culture, which is ironic because we're all on social media telling everybody what we had for dinner, but we don't want to tell anybody what our sins are, right? Or what our struggles are. But we have this hyper-privatized culture, and couples especially keep their stuff bottled up in private, 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 until it gets worse, 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 and then boom! And, and then finally, we go talk to somebody. Now that I've thrown you out of the house, let's go talk to somebody. And that's great. I'm so glad you're taking that step to go talk to somebody, but like a pastor or a counselor, whoever it is, but even better would be to go talk to somebody about five years earlier. You know what I mean? About five years earlier, to help you work on things instead of waiting till things are just about ready to crumble. So I'm telling you just some wisdom, guys. Don't wait. Don't wait. There's no reason. There's no reason. There's no shame in saying, hey, we sense things kind of percolating, and we just want to get some wisdom. Man, you would be my heroes if a couple came and said that. That's awesome. Let's talk. Let's get it. Let's get it healed immediately. Praise the Lord. Take the initiative to stay healthy in your marriage. Number two, let your spouse have final say on your friends and vice versa. This is getting really practical here, but I'm telling you, this, this could save some lives, save some marriages here. Now, number two only works if number one is in play, right? If number one is true, you're working on a healthy marriage. Otherwise, number two will not work because you will use number two to just punish one another. But if number one is in play, then number two is a natural. And so, in other words, Mel, Mel helps pick my friends, and, and I help pick hers as far as, as, as kind of like having, uh, you know, final right of refusal. You know what I mean? So here's a, here, I'm going to make this easy for you. Here's a picture. There's, 
me and Mel, I'm the one with the broad shoulders, you can tell, we're just living our life. And of course, as we learned last week, it was never a dress, right? I, I love that. I know it's like five years old, but I, I love this still. So here we are. So I have, I have guys and gals who are friends, but it's not just up to me. I've got these, these, these folks who are friends. Hey, these are my, you know, I don't just say, Mel, these are my friends. You know, you stay out of it. They're mine. This is up to us to decide, right? So who gets to draw the circle? We draw the circle together. We draw the circle together. And Mel has final right of refusal over who's in and who's out of our personal friends, right? So there may be some poor deer over here who's just not going to benefit from a lifetime of friendship with me. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Um, and I might say, well, Mel, she seems like a really great person. She, I, I don't know what you're, you know. But, you know, Mel just may see some things that I don't. She may sense some things. She might notice some things that I don't notice. Or she may just say, you know what? When it comes right down to it, it's just my gut. It's just something about there. I'm just not comfortable with it. At which point, discussion is over. We draw the line right there uh, around, around the friendships. So that we do not, so I don't pursue that friendship. I don't pursue that one. Because the, the, the fact is, whether she's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. Whether she's right or wrong, it doesn't matter if it's wounding her in any way whatsoever. It's not about who's right or wrong. It's who I honor and who I love, and I honor and love her, right? So she gets to help draw the line around my friendships, and I get to help draw the line around hers. Uh, but again, that only works if you're in a healthy relationship, one where you trust each other, uh, one where you're, you're both looking out for the best of each other, trying to out-love and out-submit, out-love, out-submit. That's recipe for a great marriage right there. All right. Here's, here's the last strategy for you married folks. Number three, have close friends who ask awkward questions. Have close friends. Now, here again, this that friend is probably not the same gender as you, have the close friend who asks awkward questions. The one who can, you know, the one who can come up to you and ask you this stuff. It would probably make you mad if anybody else said it. Uh, those are your brothers and sisters. They come up. That's the, the, the friend who says, you know, you've been hanging out with that person, that, that girl, a lot, it seems like lately. I've noticed when she comes in the room, you just light up in a way that you don't light up with anybody else. Did, did you just suck in your gut when she walked by? I saw that. What's going on up there? You need that friend. That friend. Right? We need that kind of brotherly and sisterly, honest, in-your-face questions. They can help us start to notice patterns, sometimes even before you do. They can help. And you're going to go, you know what? You're right. I'm not treating this person like like a brother or a sister in a way that Scripture says. I, I'm, I'm putting them in some kind of a special category. And that's, where, that's where danger lies there. Awkward conversations are a good thing. Awkward conversations are good. And listen, be grateful for those friends. Don't get defensive. Be grateful for a friend who will talk to you rather than to others about you. That is the most priceless thing you can have. Some friend who will just tell you what she or he thinks, rather than tell everyone else what they think about you. So don't get defensive. Thank God for having those close friends in your life 
who will come to you instead of airing their thoughts about you to the world. I, I, I'm very blessed to have, have guys who will tell me exactly brutally what they think about me. Sometimes too brutally, but that's all right. It's all right. Thank God for him. Hallelujah. See, we want this community to be healthy. We want to have a healthy community. We want, to, we want our lives to be healthy. Uh, we want to be, we're not because we're not just doing this for us. Like we said, we are doing this for others so that we can be the salt and the light to the world. So in just a minute, as we get ready to pray, this, this is your opportunity where you're sitting right there. You know what's going on. You know what's happening in your home, in your personal life, if you're married, in your marriage. And this is your opportunity. First of all, you can say, Jesus, thank you for pulling me into this community with these brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for cleansing me and walking with me and teaching me and letting me be a disciple, letting me sit at your feet, Jesus. But maybe it's also an opportunity for you to say, Jesus, I recommit. I receive your lordship over my life. I want to to renew my commitment. Maybe today can be that opportunity for many of us. Jesus said this in the book of Luke. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of self-sacrifice, doesn't it? That's a lot of, that's a lot of giving up. That's a lot of dying, and it's true. But what's so beautiful is there's a resurrection on the other side of that life. There's a resurrection on the other side of that dying. And there's a new life. There's a new family, a new heart, a new spirit, a new community, a new kind of love. So ask yourself today, ask yourself, what does he say? Whoever wants to be my disciple, deny themselves. Whoever wants to save their life, lose it, but you have to lose your life life to save it. Ask yourself, do you love Jesus more than anyone or anything else? Is that true? Is that a true statement? Do you love Jesus truly more than anyone or anything else in your life? Because if it's not true, then us just telling you how to behave is legalism, and it's worth nothing. And I'm not here to just put legalism on you. So take a, take a minute to stop and ask yourself, do I love Jesus more than anything? Remind yourself of your first love. Meditate on what you know is true. Sometimes I think we get confused about what is the right thing to do in our life, the steps we're taking, the relationships that we have. Sometimes that confusion is unnecessary because the right thing to do is clear. Sometimes the right thing to do is really clear. Uh, it's just easier to say we're confused than to say we're stubborn, than to say we're hard-hearted, than to say I just don't want to do the right thing. It's easier to say we're confused, but I am praying for clarity for every single person here. Because on some of these issues, it's not really confusing. You're just doing something wrong. <laughs> and, and, and it's not to shame you. It's just a matter of pointing it out 
and saying, hey, I need to get back on track. So I'm going to pray this morning that God just, just blows away the fog of confusion from our hearts, gives us clarity. I pray for some of you that this might be a time for you to really get real with God and to say, God, how can you help me be the person that I know you want me to be? I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to be that person that fully follows Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you this morning for sending Jesus to be our living example of God's heart of love toward us. Thank you, God, for showing us how much you love us and teaching us how we can love you and how we can love others better. I pray that today we would renew our commitment, that we would listen to your spirit. We would be a people who love well because you have taught us what love looks like. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us, rebuke us, encourage us, embolden us to follow Jesus and to follow him wholeheartedly. And I know that in order to do that, it's, it's not just about a decision that we make internally. It's a commitment to the body of Christ, to the people within which your spirit lives. Your spirit is here. We commit to these relationships, to gospel-centered relationships. Help us all to steward well the message of truth to this world around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.